It all comes down to a shootout. Five chances each. The pressure is immense. Chico Hamilton beats Jack Grant on Minnesota's first attempt for a 1-0 lead. Bogey tries to retaliate, but kicks goalkeeper Tino Letiri makes the save. Terry maintains the hot hand in the shootout as he stops Dennis Stewart, Steve Hunt, and Nelsie Moraes. The Cosmos are 0 for 4. But Brand rises to the occasion and keeps the Cosmos alive with saves on Ron Futcher, Charlie George, Ace Nesolenge. And then a sliding stop against Greg Villa when a Minnesota goal would have ended it. The Cosmos have but one last chance. Five seconds and 35 yards separate the Cosmos from elimination. The shooter, number five, Carlos Alberto, was never before participated in a shootout. at the Cosmos stay alive if he misses the season's over. Letary out, shot! Go! Carlos Alberto has tied it! The Cosmos stay alive! The pressure now on Jack Brand. Tied at one kick apiece, the sixth kick. Captain Allen Merrick, out comes Brand. Merrick, shot! Save! A brilliant save by Jack Brand. And now the Cosmos have a chance to win it. Franz Beckenbauer. Now it's up to Franz. A man that knows pressure. He knows World Cup pressure, European Cup pressure. Now he could win it for the Cosmos. Beckenbauer. Letary out. Franz. Fake shot. The Cosmos have won it. An incredible comeback. The Cosmos advance to Portland. The Cosmos still alive on a Beckenbauer goal in a tremendous shootout. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. Let's get going, shall we? Hi there, friends. Tim Hanlon here reporting for duty. It's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to all kinds of aspects of what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. Uh, we appreciate it. And um, we uh, bounce back to uh, the uh, the world's beautiful game, that of soccer, and uh, a guest that we've been after for Gosh, almost as long as we've been doing this podcast, if you can believe it, and if he can believe it. Pablo Maurer is here. He is uh, one of the uh, must-read soccer writers out there in uh, in the here United States, bar none. 
um, writes for The Athletic, which is now owned by The New York Times, which in itself is an absolute must have in one's uh, media subscription pile because The Athletic is uh, doing everything that uh, your local sports pages uh, back in the day used to do. And that is comprehensive, agate style, <laughs> detailed um, uh, coverings of various sports and teams and leagues and that kind of stuff. And, and Pablo, if you don't know him, you follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's at uh, MLS, excuse me, MLSist, M-L-S-I-S-T. Um, uh, he's a great follow, number one. Number two, uh, his, uh, his uh, uh, angle for covering uh, pro soccer in the United States, yeah, there's a hefty bunch of, of MLS. He covers uh, a fair bit of it. Um, uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, a lot of DC United stuff because he lives in the uh, in in DC proper, and um, uh, I don't know if that's by happenstance or by desire. But um, the more you get into following Pablo's stuff, you'll recognize that he is a much older soul than he's going to sort of let on. Um, certainly, he's much younger than I am, um, but uh, he's also somebody who's just uh, gold plated for a show like this. Um, our conversation this week with Pablo uh, allows us uh, an expansive and uh, just uh, fun-filled uh, journey into all kinds of ephemera in, let's call it, U.S. or American pro soccer history. Now, to the uh, to the outside observer, that sounds a little odd because what kind of rural history is there, right? I think if you listen to the show for any period of time, you'll recognize that for sure there is plenty of it, and it goes way back further than most people even realize. But there's a whole generation of people that you know think that pro soccer started with Major League Soccer in 1996, and, and that's okay. Um, as we've delved into this and uh, on this show many, many times, we spend an inordinate amount of time on stuff like the North American Soccer League, which in most cases could be argued as being the true, full uh, launch and sustained uh, attempt at the pro game at a, at a big modern level uh, from, you know, roughly the late 60s until the middle of the 1980s and then the dark period thereafter and then finally MLS coming in, in 96. Uh, but Pablo is, um, uh, he's just, a, he's like a kindred soul. Uh, in some respects, a, a brother from another mother in, in the fact that uh, this is a guy who regales, as we like to do, frankly, in um, some of the oddities, absurdities, and uh, just all over, just out and out forgottenness of things like the old North American Soccer League. Uh, perhaps you remember, if you were a fan of that league or have gone back on your own being a soccer fan now and recognizing there was a history, you may remember a thing called Team America. We've talked about it before in the old NASL. It was the U.S. national team, or at least a reasonable facsimile, simile, excuse me, uh, uh, he says, of that uh, entity uh, reconstituted uh, as an actual team in the 1983 North American Soccer League season. Um, uh, Pablo has a wonderful article he did a couple of years ago on that whole history, well worth finding. Um, do you remember a, a, a franchise in uh, in the NASL 1977 called Team Hawaii. Uh, Pablo has written extensively on that story. You may remember some of the uh, international superstars beyond Pelé that came over uh, into the United States to play in this North American Soccer League. Uh, and there are three 
awesome articles that go into the in-depth stories of Johan Cruyff, uh, especially with the Washington diplomats of the old NASL, George Best, himself an enigma wrapped in a puzzle, you know, uh, and then some uh, across three teams in the old NASL. And Gerd Mueller, who played uh, for the Fort Lauderdale Strikers uh, after a, um, a gargantuan um, a journey as a, a professional uh, of the highest order in the German Bundesliga. Um, he's Pablo has written stories extensively on that, but we get into much, much more. Um, also, some of the forgotten stories of, of Major League Soccer. Yeah, I mean, it's 27 years old and counting. And yeah, there's already stuff that's already been forgotten from that, if you can believe it. How about Chivas USA? Remember them? Um, uh, were they an extension of Chivas here in the United States? Were they truly that? Were they something different? Uh, yes, no, and and sort of, and not. And and we get into that, and there's a, an excellent article there. We'll have all the links to these great stories um, that Pablo has done uh, for The Athletic. But we also get into uh, that clip that you uh, just heard there. Um, an ode to and a, uh, a remembrance of uh, fondly, uh, you will hear in our chat, of the old uh, 35-yard line shootout uh, of the old North American Soccer League, which you may remember in the early years of MLS was also employed there, too, to break ties right after the uh, uh, the end of regulation play. Um, uh, arguably a, a hollow... Um, uh, use of something that was much more uh, integrated and, and highly uh, entertaining in the old North American soccer league. And that clip from uh, one of the uh, excellent um, New York Cosmos year end reviews, uh, there's a whole bunch of films of some of their, uh, some of their glory years. Uh, that was the, from the 1978, we are the champions uh, retrospective of the, um, I almost called the perfect Cosmos season. Uh, of their short tenure, and that uh, the the uh, uh, the description and the uh, partially sort of documentary slash uh, recreation of uh, a, a key game in the uh, the playoff run of the Cosmos that year, winning the championship, um, was perhaps from one of the most memorable uh, playoff games in um, in North American Soccer League history. It came on. Uh, August 16th, 1978, two days, just two days after the Cosmos uh, had been uh, kicked in the nuts by the Minnesota Kicks in the first of a three-game, really two-game two plus mini-game series in the playoffs. Um, in Minnesota, they lost nine to two, the Cosmos did to the Kicks. Uh, and literally two nights later uh, in East Rutherford, that's how quick the turnaround was. Uh, the Cosmos won the second game four to nothing, and then it went to a mini game, which was the NASL's approach to uh, breaking uh, two game series that were tied. Literally a separate game of uh, only 30 minutes in length, sudden death at that. Uh, and if those um, that sudden death game didn't yield a game winning goal, uh, it went to this thing, this concoction known as a shootout. Now, um, this was also something uh, present in a number of the NASL uh, league games during the regular season, not just in the playoffs, obviously heightened drama then. But what is it? Um, we'll get into a little bit of the description if you're not familiar with it. Uh, you'll hear our arguments as to why it maybe should come back uh, in either the international game or at least domestically in the U.S. Um, but it's basically a, a, a better, more uh, even-chanced 
uh, version of a penalty kick shootout. And instead of the, the being a spot kick from, what is it, 18 yards out, one-on-one with the goalie, uh, with the goalie not really able to kind of move except for, you know, side-by-side side on the goal line. And uh, the uh, the shooter being having to uh, continuously uh, kick through uh, the ball. Um, it's pretty staid by comparison to this much more dynamic 35-yard line oriented shootout thing, which the NASL had for many years. Uh, and it essentially put the ball that far away from the goal. And it was literally a five-second adventure for the player with the ball to dribble, kick, uh, move, maneuver. The goalie largely oftentimes to come out and try to narrow the angle and literally see what happens. It's almost kind of like a penalty shootout you'll see in the NHL these days, um, you know, which which is at the halfway line, I think, of the rink. Um, it's much more of a challenge. It's certainly a hell of a lot more exciting. And it's uh, the odds are certainly much more even than sort of a spot kick, penalty kick thing. So um, if you're not familiar with the 35-yard line in the NASL, look it up. If you're not familiar with the shootout, look that up. There's lots of great videos that'll show you great examples of it. But that's one of the areas that we talk about. Long forgotten, but uh, not in our hearts. Uh, Pablo Maurer and mine, uh, as we reminisce about some of the um, uh, fun and uh, forgotten uh, things about things like the North American Soccer League and even Major League Soccer. Yeah, we talk about some of the original two cool nicknames of MLS, like the Wiz, the Burn, the Clash. Um, and uh, we get into um, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you may remember in between the NASL and Major League Soccer, the USISL, uh, the various minor leagues of soccer that existed before MLS started, and the and the crazy rule changes. We get into that too. And if you stick around, you'll even learn something really cool about something that most people don't even remember called soccer with a K, soccer slam. Think wrestling, television, and mayhem mixed with soccer, and you'll have some idea about what that was all about. All that and more with the great Pablo Maurer coming up in a few moments time. Before we get there, a quick promotional nod to our pal. Let's see this week. How about Dean Mitchell in San Diego? We haven't talked to, uh, about Dean and his awesome site for a while. It's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Memorabilia of all the leagues that thrived, failed, and shaped the North American sports landscape of today. And boy, this is a perfect episode uh, to uh, highlight sportshistorycollectibles.com for sure. Um, all the sports that you can imagine uh, and all the various teams and leagues that may have come and gone and all the wonderful uh, High-quality, well-lit, uh, beautifully photographed memorabilia from such can be found for you there at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Name the sport, name the events. Uh, chances are very high that you will find more than one uh, great item or two or seven uh, to uh, tickle your fancy and hopefully um, part with some bucks uh, from your wallet to uh, to uh, grab and enjoy and hold on to the memories. Uh, and uh, the soccer section uh, is uh, is uh, a great example for sure. We're going to be talking about Chivas USA in a couple of minutes. There are a couple of logo uh, soccer balls, uh, some giveaway balls that were a part of the promotional efforts there. Um, I see a gorgeous one uh, with uh, red stripes and the uh, Chivas uh, logo in the middle. 
uh, for a, a fair and a decent price. There's a whole bunch of Major League Soccer early year uh, programs and stuff. There's plenty of NASL memories in there, too. Um, just about from uh, every team uh, and uh, from every sort of iteration, uh, whether they be media guides or uh, programs or uh, pocket schedules. Um, uh, there's uh, press release materials. There are, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So if you're a fan of all kinds of forgotten uh, soccer stuff, uh, whether it be the NASL, whether it be Major League Soccer, whether it be World Cup memories, whether it be the American Soccer League, um, whether it be the MISL, whatever, uh, it's a treasure trove and then some at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And that's just the soccer section. So many other great sports and stuff to uh, to browse and purchase. And a promo code for you there is good seats for 15% off everything that you might desire to buy at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Again, promo code good seats for 15% off of all of your purchases. Thank you, Dean. Thank you to sportshistorycollectibles.com. All right. Thank you kindly. And uh, let's get into it. Pablo is a wonderful guy. I'm so glad we finally got a chance to get him on our air. And uh, this is a treasure trove and a treat. Uh, Whether you're a soccer fan or not, take a listen and see if you don't agree. Uh, As always, please enjoy. You know, for those who have uh, don't know your stuff, um, uh, why don't you give um, our audience a background, especially our quote unquote non soccer uh, types, as to um, what the day job is, uh, how long you've been at the athletic, which is you know, uh, frankly, God's gift to the sports fan uh, in this day and age, and um, and kind of maybe how you got into this game in in the first place, journalism generally, but I guess this. Um, uh, fairly solid and defined soccer beat the way you define it uh, in the first place. Yeah. Um, I've been full-time at the athletic, uh, let's say for three years now. Um, I freelanced for them for a little while prior to that. Um, you know, as far as how I got into doing it, um, you know, I spent almost 20 years working on cars for a living. Um, and at some point during that, career i just started freelancing about soccer i mean i you know i don't i've never studied writing uh, thankfully you know my my parents are both writers uh college professors you know so i think maybe i inherited some of that from them and you know i'd, I'd be lying if i didn't say that my dad probably edited some of my earlier work <laughs> you know but um i don't know you know it's just one of those things i i gained some sort of a following on twitter um and then, you know, here we are years later, I, I managed to sort of make the transition to doing it full time. I, I do still work on cars from time to time. It's not, you know, I think if you do any skilled trade for like 20 years, it's, it's not something you really quit kind of gets in your blood, you know? And then as far as, as far as like the, my very strange beat, which I guess I would describe as, um, uh, you know, soccer history, but maybe more focused on the some of the weirder aspects of the american game or things that have been forgotten i always like to say that um that maybe my pieces are you know many of them don't seem like they would be stories until you read them um that came about just because it's the stuff that i'm interested in man you know i i i i write 
you know, I write best when I'm invested and excited about the subject matter and um, something about the stupidities of American soccer over the past 40 or 50 years really <laughs> kind of gets my juices going. So um, yeah, that's, that's probably the, the two minute version of my career trajectory. You well, know. you've saved four years or two years or a year of, of graduate uh, journalism school by, by crystallizing what, uh, what uh, journalists should know, right. And write what you know, and, and what, what sort of intrigues you and, and you're passionate about. So, okay. Then the natural question then is why and how soccer versus something else to get you to jump from, you know, the world of, of cars and fixing and all that kind of stuff to, writing yeah i mean you know my family's from spain my mother is from spain she moved here you know about a year before i was born in 1980 um my father might as well be spanish uh you know he spent his whole life uh studying you know the spanish poet garcia lorca and you know writing up you know the, the government of spain made him an honorary spanish citizen a, a few years ago for his cultural work so um you know, much of my childhood was spent in Spain, you know, probably every summer for 15 years. And, you know, I lived there in, I think, 92 and 93. Um, I lived there and studied there. So, you know, soccer is just sort of in my blood. Um, you know, I remember, I remember living in Spain in 92 and 93 and watching, you know, Tab Ramos at Real Betis, for example, um, and then just thinking to myself, God, there's like, you know, soccer just doesn't it barely even exists in the United States. It's crazy. So, you know, when I came back, uh, you know, it sort of coincided with the 94 World Cup. And it, it's been kind of, you know, the rest is sort of history after that. But, you know, I I don't know. I've, um, you know, I, I, I've done a bunch of writing um, that's non-sports you know mostly focused on history i had a photo series for many years on abandoned places i you know would accompany them with an essay about the history of the the places i was taking a photo of so i mean i definitely do have other writing interests but when it comes to sports um it seems to be focused on soccer which by the way i think is a shame and i'm i i think i should branch out a little bit because you know i think about something like minor league baseball or you know, any, any other sort of sport, the, the stuff that you cover in your podcast um, is a good example. I mean, uh, you know, these stories exist everywhere. What I would say about soccer is that it's just like, none of them have really been written. Nobody's bothered to, to write the really dumb stories. Baseball is like, it feels like every story has been told almost, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's why soccer, I guess, you know? Well, I, I, I look, that's uh, I love that, right? That's the whole reason why I've been, you know, chasing you for three years. But um, uh, so, how did then just tell us how you, how does it become kind of a, a paying gig, so to speak, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you can be a real fan, you know, a fanboy, and 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 have a decent, uh, uh, you know, skills in terms of writing and communicating and all that stuff. But it doesn't mean you're going to, you know, how do you get picked up for a couple of freelance articles, and then, and then how does the full time thing? come about i mean uh you you obviously live in i think you live in the dc area or roughly nearby right um, i live in dc proper yeah, okay proper so so was was united your 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 kind of your immediate adjunct or how do you stumble into sort of getting paid for this passion of yours newfound yeah i mean i i started out covering dc united for dcist which is a really popular local site here in dc um it just a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to do it. And it seemed like, uh, you know, an excuse to get 
better access to games basically so i started doing it um i think as far as going full-time goes i mean you know i started writing these history pieces uh um you know on a freelance basis i i did one on team america for mlssoccer.com i remember maybe like six seven years ago and and did it you know it's three thousand words and like a month of work and i got paid 200 bucks you know so I guess suffered through enough of that. But so, so why not sign up for more? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But thank you. May I have another, you know, um, I, I, I think, um, you know, this might sound obnoxious, but, you know, I'd, I'd be lying if I, I mean, I genuinely feel like, you know, much of the reason that I got a full-time job is um, just Twitter. I mean, I think there aren't a ton of soccer writers in the U S with like, I don't know, for lack of a better description, maybe I'd say big personalities or, you know, just sort of tweet whatever's on my mind more or less. And I think, you know, I built a sizable following through that. And um, and then, you know, I don't know. I think by the time I got picked up full-time by The Athletic, I, I think my writing was pretty good. I don't, I'm not like high on my own supply, but I think, um, you know, I think I just kind of deserved it at that point. But, it, you know, honestly, man, I have no idea. Sometimes I, I still sometimes will be at my desk writing about, you know, I'm working on a story right, right now. That's been a, you know, taken a couple of weeks and I frequently just think to myself, how am I getting paid for this? You know? So, so I don't really know, honestly, you know, I, I think that's what's qualified as a quote unquote dream job. Now dream job, obviously t- tends to be, you know, paying the bills and, and, and yeah. career, for them. but if it's the, you know, the, the hackneyed, you know, if you love what you do, um, and that's that's not a bad thing because they're for every you know there there are dozens of people for every person that says I love what I do that you know uh, strive for and never get to that sort of zone of zen. Sure. Yeah. No. I I agree. I mean, I would say a lot of my following I earned on breaking news and doing actual kind of you know soccer journalism. Sorry, I have the hiccups. Um. So yeah, there was there was a lot of hard work when it comes to that too. But, um, but I don't know, maybe I also took advantage of the fact that I think, uh, you know, some of the writers in this field have just been too lazy to write the types of stories that I do. I mean, I think about that water fountain story in particular, and I think to myself, that photo of Landon Donovan was like joked about for so many years. I mean, like every day on the internet, you know, in stadiums, X, Y, and Z, and like, how did nobody think to just write that story? You know, um, so maybe my brain is defective in some way to where <laughs> those things like seem like they're worth writing about. You well, know, no, that I'm... that that article is is uh, uh, iconic, uh, and but it, I think it also is 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 representative, right? Because in some respects, you're you're kind of um, you know you're 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 taking you're doing the hot take thing, and you're actually doing journalism the way it's kind of sort of it, it evolves today which is more social and and you know hot takes and, and that kind of stuff and then that begets shall we say more classic delivery versus the other way around which is sort of the you know traditional writing and 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 reporting and that kind of stuff and then maybe you know if you've got a few extra minutes you kind of hang out on social and try so you kind of you, you just you're indicative of, a, of i think the new dynamic and generation of how quote-unquote journalism gets done but that story right it's 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 the gift that keeps on giving um because <laughs> for a number of different reasons, one obviously was highlighting, you know, some of the of the players, the high, the 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 the, the best players that the U.S. had at the, at the time, 
Um, but it also kind of turns turns it on its head, not unlike other more, shall we say, established sports in this country. You know, all that stuff, right? Yeah, I would I would say there was a comment on that piece that said something like, I didn't I don't pay for an athletic subscription to read like a sociology piece. And it just made me so happy, like deeply happy. You know, I was like mission accomplished because I didn't want this to be a sports piece at all. You know, it just like, you know, I I wanted maybe to make people a little uncomfortable or make them think about, you know, why people laugh at those photos or the implications of them, you know, the implicate, you know, the the ramifications that those photographs had on the careers of multiple people, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I was i you could put that piece on my tombstone i think i <laughs> i was pretty thrilled with but, it but that that piece also is is also kind of a, implicitly kind of a, a a a wink and a nod to um to uh, perhaps at the time and and maybe less so now a latent uh scaled uh number of people who don't need the explainer anymore right don't yeah, need the yeah. apologist and or excuse or the lamentable you know woe is soccer in this country it's kind of like, you know, we've been there, done that and gone through so much. Let's just get into the stuff. And 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 maybe we've arrived uh, to a point where we can, I don't know, kind of mainstream cover this stuff, uh, silliness and all. Uh, yeah, yeah. And in some respects, it almost speaks to the how the game has kind of grown, at least at least in the United States. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. You know, I mean, I think um, I do think, you know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, the idea of in, even writing about the history of MLS would have been quasi laughable, you know, but I think, I think there's been enough mileage on, on that league and there's been enough distance from, for example, the NASL to where those things are, are historically relevant. Now, you know, I always, I always make this comparison when it comes to, let's say the NASL, um, I think, you know, which has been written about plenty, obviously, but I do think there's still so many stories that have been told. And I think that people don't tell them because that league, as as far as the time period it occurred in, you know, it's like it's too recent to be considered like, you know, actual, you know, capital H history, right? It's but it's like too old to feel relevant still. And it sort of gets caught in this middle the middle distance where people don't even think about it. Right. It's, it reminds me a lot of different styles of architecture. When you look at brutalism or even, even more, you know, like modern architecture from the eighties and nineties, if buildings just get torn down because nobody bothers to think of what, you know, what historical relevance they might have. They're not old enough. Right. They're also too new to be, you know, they're too new to be relevant and, and too old to be functional anymore. So it's like, I feel like a lot of the history of the, game in this country in the 60s 70s 80s 90s is caught in this middle distance where it's just people don't think to write about it you know study it and to be clear there's tons of people doing a ton of great work like the society for american soccer history for example there's people really efforting to document um things you know but but you know when it comes to the nasl sorry to prattle on about this but guys are dying you know, I mean, I, I I talked about that Team America piece. I'm actually uh, writing another Team America thing, which will write run in a week or two. Um, I just went sort of way deeper with it this time, and between my first round of reporting and 
this round of reporting, the owner of the team, Robert Lifton, passed away. Thankfully, I already talked to him. And two of the players passed away. Um, Chico Borja and Pedro Debrito, right? So it's like, and three of them, Mark Peterson also. So um, it just, you know, these things are worth writing about and digging into. I guess is uh, yeah. I, I, so I totally agree. I, a couple of things to unpack there, and, and then we'll sort of get into some of the some of the the twists and turns of the stories that you've done because I just think they're all just you know the brilliance in, in many different ways. Um, you're also young enough, right? Where the NASL wasn't on, you know, it wasn't part of your growing up, right? You, you this was a league that was largely done by the time you were, um, you know, uh, conscious, shall we say. Um, yeah, I mean the USISL was probably my first okay well, real exposure to that, soccer. That and also MLS too. Then as it as it comes in the in the in the in the mid nineties, uh, um, you know, uh, and now having embraced uh, somewhat ham handedly uh, case by case some of the original NASL monikers, right? Especially yeah, Pacific yeah. West and stuff. But it's funny how they did that when it became you know cool and retro and profitable, right? I mean, it's it's just like. I think somewhat ham-handedly is probably the best way to put that. Well, I, I guess that's my point, right? In that, in yeah. that, it, 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 just the existence of those, and 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 the now the earthquakes, and and I bet you we'll see one more, one or two more, maybe over time. Uh, it 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 does bring up kind of a curiosity, right? And there's a whole generation of fans of this league now, what 26, 27 years old now, uh, that don't you know that may have a, a passing understanding or reference or maybe read the paragraph in the uh, on the website of the of the history and stuff but it, it does kind of gnaw right at that a lot of it is still a void frankly um and i'm not saying it has to be remembered um but it, it does uh th there are some persistent uh uh existences and traditions and things even they've been rehabbed um, that, you know, uh, were there before Major League Soccer ever started, because there's a whole generation of people who think that MLS was the beginning of time when it comes to American soccer. Yeah, I mean, it, it cracks me up because there are even things about MLS. You know, it's like when you see, uh, I mean, I, I would say the league, the league, one thing the league has like embraced in the past two years, and they probably just finally did it because they realized that it's fun is, you know, you see them tweeting or instagramming all the time about 30, the 35 yard shootout now or uh goalie wars is not really comes to mind and it's like i i always cracks me up when like you see fans in the at the age that you're talking about you know early 20s something like that that are just like what the hell is this you know i mean they like there there are people who didn't who don't even know that that existed in major league soccer uh let alone the nasl where it started so so yeah i mean uh people's what you're saying about MLS is absolutely true. I mean, the, the average soccer consumer in the United States, you know, soccer started with major league soccer. I mean, men's soccer at least started with that. Uh, you know, um, nobody really has bothered to poke around uh, prior to that for the most part. Well, that's why we're here to talk to you. So let's start poking around um, and let's go back to Team America. We had uh, Rick Davis on one of our, I don't know, our first 20 episodes, I think. And oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I, um, I, he, he stung me with uh, a, a, a quote that I used actually at the, at the, the top of that show. And it's, it, I highly recommend our listeners to, to, to seek it out, especially if they, you know, have a vague memory of Rick, young Ricky Davis running the, um, 
uh, the artificial turf there at Giant Stadium for the Cosmos at the time, a sort of an Amer- American phenom, right? A, more an exception rather than the rule back in that day. But he specifically, I asked him about Team America, and he went deep and hard and very emotional, actually. Yep. About how it ruptured his friendship, I think, still to this day. Yeah, with Jeff, with Durgan. Jeff Durgan. Yep. Another Cosmos guy. Um, so maybe that's a, a table set for. What's the what, what was the deal with this Team America thing? And, and for those who don't know, and maybe a little bit of substance. Yeah, I mean, the idea. So a few things were happening. A, the NASL was collapsing, right? It's 1983. They're about a year away from folding completely the league. Um, B, the 86 World Cup, um, which had initially been given to Colombia, was sort of up for grabs because Colombia, for financial reasons, pulled out. So the NASL sees this opportunity. Um to maybe a win the 86 world cup, bring it to the United States. Um, and they realized that, you know, to do that, a, they're going to need to develop the U S national team quickly. They're going to need to demonstrate to FIFA that they're sort of taking this seriously. So they come up with this, this idea that nowadays sounds absolutely bizarre. But um, if you talk to anybody who was on the team or surrounding it, people thought it was brilliant at the time which is to assemble essentially the U.S. national team and enter them into the NASL as a club, right? Which, uh, you know, which would be called Team America. Um, They were backed by Robert Lifton, who I uh, mentioned earlier, who's just a, you know, a D.C. area businessman. They had a ton of sponsorship money from Budweiser, Winston Cigarettes, Adidas. Um, You know, it did seem on the surface like a really good idea, but what, um, you know, to explain to your listeners what Tim was just talking about, uh, Ricky Davis, you know, essentially what happened is, you know, before the team even started, there were these huge issues. There were issues with um, players in the Cosmos not wanting to come, players on the Seattle Sounders not wanting to come. There's a whole dust up with the major indoor soccer league, MISL, where they didn't want to release their players because the NASL had a, a competing indoor league and, um, you know, didn't want to pay their salaries, all this other stuff. So what you ended up with was this sort of, hodgepodge of american players and some of them weren't even american citizens or i think two or three players in the team that were on a green card for example um team was just incredibly poorly assembled coached by alcus panagoulias who is a you know former coach of the greek national team and and um coach of the new york greek americans um who also you know if you talk to players in the team not the most tactically adept coach so you know, it was pretty predictable how it went. I think they surprised some guys, some teams at the beginning of the year, but, you know, eventually they finished in last place. And, and Ricky Davis, you know, his, the, I completely agree with you because I when when I interviewed him in whatever it was, 2017 for this piece, he, I mean, he got emotional, honestly, about the stuff with Durgan. You know, Jeff Durgan, again, for your listeners, if they don't know, was a young American center back at the Cosmos playing alongside Carlos Alberto, um, just like an absolute unit of a defender. I mean, a scary, scary player, honestly, in some cases. He decided to join Team America. Ricky Davis, who, you know, like you said, was sort of a young phenom, Kyle Rowe Jr. type, stayed. And, you know, it caused a lot of issues. And it caused even issues on the field. They absolutely crushed Ricky Davis when they played the Cosmos, you know. So, yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there, you know. The, the one thing I'd say about Team America is the, you know, the 
the principle of it seems so bizarre that you would enter your national team in a league to like keep players together and keep them, you know, build chemistry. But this has existed in European leagues for years. I mean, while Team America was playing, I think like Dynamo Moscow, one of the Dynamo teams had like, you know, nine Russian national teamers on it um, or, you know, USSR um you know, like representatives on it, you know, the same thing as I said, you know, Juventus at the time had like six Italian national teamers. So unofficially, there's many teams that have managed to cobble together like half the national team, you know, but yeah, it's an interesting story. um, In your uh, reporting, both then and in to come, uh, was there any uh, uh, thread pulling on why Washington, D.C.? I know the diplomats had finally foundered and having been a, a pretty solid and an occasionally um, notable team in the league's history. Um, but why say DC versus, I don't know, St. Louis or some other more soccer rich, or it doesn't, didn't really matter maybe where a team could be located or was that sort of part of the marketing hype and all that? Yeah. Stuff? I mean, I, I think the NSL believed in DC as a market. And, you know, if you look at the dips, um, you know, when they folded, so they folded in 1980, obviously, and then they played a single season in 1981 as, you know, it was the Detroit Express essentially moved to D.C., just picked up, you know, it was like the, they were like the zombie dips, right? I mean, just sort of like not, you know, not the actual diplomats, had Johan Cruyff for six games, injured. Um, But if you you leave that one year aside, you know, they drew 20, 2,000 people a game in 1980, you know, so yeah, even um, hosted just the soccer bowl that know, year with the Cosmos and the fifth sold out RFK for the, the Cosmos and the, the strikers final game. Right. And so Gulf Western, which is, you know, the, their parent company that owned the dips. I mean, they pulled the plug because they weren't obviously still not making a ton of money. And I think they, you know, a major corporation like that, they essentially wanted them to be the Cosmos or something like that, which is never going to happen. But, you know, DC has always been, um, DC has a like rich and storied soccer history. So I think, you know, between that and it, it just being the, you know, the hub of whatever, you know, the, the, the seat of government and the United States and yada, 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 you know, it seemed to make sense. Yeah. I, I don't know. It may have done better if, um, you know, if they put it in a, a place more representative of like the, the soccer heart of the United States, you know, New Jersey, uh, St. Louis, someplace like that but no just i think it was just an obvious fit you know um red red white and blue wise you know so let's expand that out to the nasl generally right so i I, i'm assuming the team america piece was kind of like your first sort of nasl centric opus uh i think i'd written on cruyff uh before um again cruyff is another one i redid and just went way deeper on, but yeah, I mean, easily one of my first, if not the first. Yes. So, so what, given that as your sort of, maybe your, your, your baptism by fire, um, what kind of intrigued you about this, the league outside of the, those specific stories and, and maybe sort of what's guided your, uh, interest, uh, and stops along the way in that league since. I mean, look, I, my, my primary driving sort of my, like my, the thing that pushes me along as an American soccer fan is an interest in fun and, and not taking the game so seriously, not, you know, not trying so desperately to emulate the EPL or other Euro leagues. Um, 
the NASL was like the apex of this, right? I mean, <laughs> actually, the USISL might have even, you know, with their weird rules and flaming soccer balls. We'll get to that. Yeah, but, you know, the NASL was just, you know, for a moment, it was huge. And it was unapologetically, unabashedly just sort of a celebration of American soccer. I mean, teams were like, uh, you know, the players riding out on horseback or, you know, they're sort of like trying to throw whatever shit at the wall to see if it would stick. I mean, that sort of stuff really, really speaks to me because the, the, the what I don't like about modern soccer, you know, Major League Soccer in particular, is the desperation to be included in this sort of, you know, more global um soccer community or to just be taken you know be be viewed as you know being alongside these euro leagues and many of many of which are just sort of stayed and uninteresting right so yeah the nsl is just it's like a gold mine there's like never-ending series of stories and and also just to be to be real i mean if you talk to players from that era i mean it's just a completely different life for them as athletes you know it's like drugs sex alcohol uh you know i mean any anything that might interest you as a writer or a human being you know it was just it was just a totally different environment you well, know? Yeah, so, and, and for a bunch of them, it was also a summer vacation because they were still playing in, in their in their home leagues uh yeah. in the quote-unquote off or on seasons right yeah so you know and, and i'm it's also fascinating and this does still exist at mls occasionally you have you know i don't know perry kitchen playing with zlatan ibrahimovic right but i mean it is it is most uh, present in the NASL where you have, like I said, Jeff Durgan playing with Carlos Alberto or, you know, any number of people playing with Pelé or Johan Cruyff. I mean, I, the Cruyff thing, I mean, it, you know, I talked to like every living member of that 80 team and, um, and it, it was, I mean, it just cracks me up to think of somebody like Sonny Askew, who's just was like a 19 or 20 year old kid from Baltimore who just, didn't give a shit, uh, you know, having to deal with this guy who's, you know, notoriously difficult and arguably the greatest midfield you know, midfielder in the history of the game. That dynamic I love too, you know. Um, there's just there's a lot to write about there, you know. Did you what the, what our audience probably most wants to know is at least I do. Did you talk to the guy in the um, uh, the mascot uniform, the, <laughs> the diplomatic picture? Yeah, put some respect on the diplomaniac's name. Um, the, picture, I, I mean, the, the picture of the mascot in Cruyff is, is just legendary. Absolutely. I, yeah, right. Cruyff is just, you know, it's a proverbial like record scratch. Like you might be wondering how I got here. You know, um, the the sad thing about your question, which is probably asked almost as a joke, is that I know who played the diplomaniac. <laughs> it's like have this person's phone number and just have never interviewed him. Oh. So I could, <laughs> and I probably will someday. But I think we're guilting and shaming you into that. All right. Well, so so you using that as a tip-off point though, you you have a, a couple of great pieces about uh, two other players who I, I wouldn't say fit that mold, but but certainly uh, uh, play to type, I guess, as you sort of hinted at. Uh, Gerd Muller and George Best, right? I think the George Best story. Uh, the three different iterations of that in the NASL is probably a little bit more well-known um, to those who've been following it. But I think the Gerd Mueller one, uh, not so much with the strikers. Um, what about those two characters, shall we say, uh, stood out to you? And and how did you advance those stories, so to speak? Uh, well, Bestie, I always wanted to write that story for multiple reasons. I mean, I think you are right. He is, you know, it's, it's maybe more well-worn territory as far as 
you know, for example, everyone's seen the goal he scored, you know, um, the at Spartan Stadium that, you know, people say is the greatest goal in, a, in NASL history. But I got to say, man, I, I couldn't find a good piece on his American sojourn, if you will. I just looked around and I was, and that's like what makes me write things. I, I just, I was shocked. It was like, how has nobody written like the George Best piece, you know? Um, and also, you know, it's it's almost hackneyed to say this about George Best, but you know he's such a complicated human being um, that it's you know it was it's you could peel back the layers of the onion and never get to the middle basically, you know. So it was um, it was an obvious one that I wanted to write the the Mueller thing. Uh, I wanted to write almost for the opposite reason. Um, I didn't know anything about him in NASL, and you think about this dude who was. Um, honestly one of the most prolific goal scorers of all time period um and, and the fact that again like nobody had really sort of written anything about him you know it was sort of shocking and then you know you find out he like owned a restaurant there and stayed in florida for you know years and summered there and um you know it was just it, it was another obvious one to write you know um sometimes i think people don't write stories because the you know if you you might think about writing about George Best and be like, ah, well, everything's already been done. But it's probably like a lot of people thinking that ends up being that nobody does anything. <laughs> so, well, no, it's also interesting too. I mean, you, you look at uh, some of these uh, uh, the biographies of of some of these uh, uh, legendary uh, players from abroad, and uh, it's always interesting is that the uh, it always seems to fall it, when you it falls into sort of the same old sort of. Uh, um, logic of there's maybe a chapter or a couple of paragraphs given to the lost us nasl years and and there's you you and i both know that there was so much more to that and frankly for a lot of american soccer fans at that time uh, that was uh, all we knew about these players and the other part was the stuff we're learning about so yeah no i i think there's plenty plenty of players uh, maybe just on the cosmos alone right where there's so much to sort of add in to their quote unquote American parts of their careers uh, and, and knowing that there were, you know, uh, quite something before and maybe even after their, their sojourn in the uh, NASL. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know, man, I've been writing, um, you know, probably three or four NASL things a year for at this point, almost a decade. And um, I still really feel like I've just scratched the surface, you know, so I'm um, you know, excited to do more of those stories. Music to our ears. What about Team Hawaii? Uh, probably a, a more, <laughs> probably a really great example of of a team that just is just dying to be. I mean, with all the one hundred percent, you have written the definitive article on Team Hawaii. Now, I don't know if you take that as a badge of honor or. or <laughs> yeah, what, I mean, I it love was, it. it. It's you know, I I feel like that of all of the experimentation in the NASL, that was almost the dumbest thing. You know, it was just what, like why. Well, it was just never going to work. I mean, travel wise, it was never going to work. And, you know, they have, I think I, t I remember I talked to Alan Merrick or maybe somebody else and they described, you know, playing the middle of the day at the Aloha Bowl. And he said he looked down and the, the soles had melted off of his turf shoes, you know, so it's just like, you know, and realistically, I talk a little bit about this in the piece. There, there is like a soccer history in Hawaii, but, you know, it's not, it's not like storied and long nobody was asking for this is what i was saying and it's it's also a classic example of the play effect you know because what you know play had come with santos i want to say in 76 to play a game 
at the Aloha Bowl and uh, or 75, something like that, you know, and there were 35,000 people there because it's freaking play, you know, um, and that just was enough to convince, uh, you know, a few um, few local business people and also um, Ward Lay, the potato chip magnate <laughs> to uh, to start a franchise, you know, Um so no, I was, it's another one I always wanted to do just because they're also almost invisible. There's, you know, I found after just combing through like every piece of video I could find, like 30 seconds of game footage from um, that featured team Hawaii, it was a clip taken in Dallas and it came off a Kyle Rote Jr. highlight tape, right? So that's sort of how invisible um, they were. So no, I I was thrilled to do it. Matt, Matt Pence, who's a frequent collaborator um teamed up with me on that so i gotta gotta give him some love well i i what other teams i mean there's got to be a ton i mean i i think of 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 other ones that are kind of uh uh you know uh, divots in the history uh, the san antonio thunder come to mind uh, yeah las vegas quicksilvers probably is one that colorado caribou's just the story about the fringe on top uh as well and and the the, the connection to the ranch there and all that stuff yeah, I think uh, Charlie Bone was a very close friend of mine. Did uh, a decent story on them for MLS uh, some years back. I I keep meaning to revisit it and see, you know, because I'm always I'm not afraid to write a story someone else has already written. If you just convince yourself that you could go much deeper and add to it and move it along, you know. Um, but I I do think Charlie's story was pretty good, you know. So I I don't know. I'd have to go back and read that one to see if it's worth poking around on. Yeah, those those uniforms are something else. All right, what's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of yore and NAIA college football teams of yore. All of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time. Um, And, by the way, custom helmets can be made, too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command. 
uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away. All of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase. All of them. All of your purchases. 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code Good Seats. Again, promo code Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd. And uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. All right, so let's stick with the NASL and use it as a jumping or the the connective thread, I guess, to MLS, right? And and we mentioned it earlier is that 35-yard uh, shootout uh, thing. Um, obviously, the 35-yard line was even more than that in the NASL with that being the offsides uh, 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 line in, in games. Um, uh, tell, talk to me about sort of that that journey for that story because people don't even reckon, remember now who are MLS fans that in the first few years there was a tie-breaking shootout, uh, yep. kind of a, a dumbed-down version of what the NASL did. But it's also good to know, I think, that there was this shootout idea earlier on in the NASL's life that you know it wasn't just made up in thin air in MLS offices in '96. Yeah, I mean, you you could almost argue it's sort of that and the countdown clock were the two things that MLS chose to retain from the NASL. I think MLS really went to great lengths to distance themselves from the NASL because obviously the NASL very notoriously had imploded. Um, but the, the, the question that sort of guided, I mean, this is the honest to God truth, the question that guided like 90% of soccer decisions in the united states for a century was uh well two questions one how do we americanize this thing and two um how do we make it more high scoring you know there's there's always this sort of idea that american consumers fans can't can't handle draws can't handle one zero two zero games um so you know i think the the shootout in the nasl grew from that and i think mls retained it because of that i just Again, this is a another example of a um, of a, a subject I wanted to do because I just never really seen anything written definitively about it. I thought to myself, like, okay, like you know, let's go all the way back to the NASL. Like, how did they start it? So I talked to, I honestly, I um, can't remember his name, but he was the director of competition or maybe even the commissioner for a while at the NASL who who told me all about that, and then. Um, you know, sort of, I was like, you know, who was, who was, who were the best 35 yard penalty takers? Who are the best keepers? You know, why did it go away? Who was involved? You know, so just sort of snowballed from there. No. And, and, and to me, it was also, it's still, uh, it's, to, it's a hell of a lot better, I think, than sort of the penalty shot, right? I, you, you it know, is unquestionable. So this is, this yeah. is a very, something I'm very passionate about. Okay. It is unquestionably more entertaining period. Full stop. Right. Besides like, aside from that, um, it is statistically much more fair. It's almost a 50, 50 split between the keeper and a, you know, between somebody scoring and some, and it getting saved or it going wide or whatever. It is 100% what they should use i don't to be clear i'm fine with ties i don't think that there should be tie breaking 30 but i mean in playoff games are you kidding me like or just in the all-star game or something like that it's 
it's it's a borderline disgrace that doesn't exist. And you know, FIFA and or um IFAB, they've looked at this. Like they they studied the, you know, they've studied the 35 yard um shootout multiple times. I think Renus Michels tried to sort of like push it through. Um Marco Van Bastian was another one who was sort of really all for it, you know. I don't know. I I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it happens someday, you know, because PKs are too random and they're kind of boring. And they also don't simulate anything that happens in a game, you know, 35 yard shootout. You could at least make the argument that it simulates a breakaway, right? Like, so to me, it's just like, it's such a no brainer, man. It's like, they should bring it back period. MLS should lead the way in doing it. Or maybe USL, you know, or a lower league could sort of trial it, but it it just, it, it really grinds my gears at this point. I, I agree. I also I think also the NASL, there were some other, I think, rule uh, changes. I, I think you it's debatable. We talked to Paul Gardner about this uh, one of our first episodes. And um, yeah, I think we could debate the 35 yard line being the uh, the place where, you know, offside sort of occurs that that could be a little compressed and, and, and sort of that really kind of gets really into the gears of the game and, and maybe not for not for the better. But but the idea of like a scoring system. Right. I don't know how much you've sort of explored that. But the idea of rewarding teams not only for a win or a tie, but also encouraging them up to three goals to score goals. Yeah, yeah, um, that doesn't tinker with yeah. the game, right? That that just that only that just incentivizes people not to run to the corner flag for the last ten minutes with a one. Yeah, and, and let, let's be realistic about this too. You know, like any any idea that originates in the United States when it comes to soccer is like DOI or DOA abroad, right? But the bottom line is, and nobody will ever, you know, it's funny. The Athletic we just did this huge piece in the backpass rule um one of our uk writers did it it was great fantastic piece i was furious because that rule originated in the nasl right so did a lot of other things you know numbers on jerseys that don't match position numbers on sleeves you know that i think and there's a bunch of other stuff i mean like the score ticker like the not the ticker the what is it cryon whatever you know like the the score being in the upper left corner at all times yeah, that the happened in the 90- score box, yeah, yeah. That was a 94 World Cup thing. That was not that did not exist before then, typically. I mean, all these things, whether whether they're on the field or um, you know, involving the production of the game, are all ideas that originated in America. But the backpass rule, it's 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 hysterical to me because people are like, Oh, that happened, you know, after the 90 World Cup because it was so boring. And then, you know, the the English soccer instituted it. And I'm like, Jesus, man, this this happened like 10 years earlier, you know, like. It's it's ridiculous, um, well, but that's what I love about your take on this because it's uh, I, you know I, is it important? Okay, in the grand scheme of life, okay. I but I, I do think it's important <laughs> in this realm. It is because number one, let's appropriate or sorry, let's give credit to where credit is due for the, for the innovators, right? I mean, you have to you remember this league was was you know uh, through fits and starts, right? Trying to bring a seemingly and arguably decidedly foreign sport to this country, even though it had been here for 100 plus years. Um, and and how do you make it appealing to the American sports fan who thinks they know everything and and have invented everything, right? So the exceptionalism thing, I, I don't know. I, it just to me feels like it's it's important to innovate where innovate. The innovation, wherever it comes from, really doesn't much matter. And, you know, I, I would hope that the U.S. is getting a little bit more taken seriously, given all the talent that's been going over there. Yeah, I mean, I think they are, but I think in large part that that's happened because they've fallen in line, you know, as far as the 
team names the you know the the way the games are presented that sort of stuff and you know so look man it's it's good and bad you know obviously it's like good that mls is thriving it's good that you know yeah i may have been only been four when the nasl folded but like let's be realistic anybody who was born in 1980 i mean they've probably seen half a dozen major you know like sizable soccer leagues in this country collapse so it's great that mls is so healthy and that it you know I can watch a game and not wonder if this whole thing is going to implode next year, but you know, I don't know, man. I just sort of like, <laughs> we, you joked about it, you know, at the top of the show, you said, Oh, you don't want to watch the six MLS games tonight. And I was like, there are MLS games tonight. <laughs> so that, like that probably shows my current level of interest to, to an extent, you know? Well, tell me, uh, let's, let's really delve into the obscure or, or for, for those who, you know, really, uh, our diehard soccer fans, you'll know this, but most don't, right? And I think it was interesting you said that the first real sort of pro soccer that you kind of kind of dug into as you were growing up was the USISL. Um, you have a, a, an amazing piece that I honestly learned a ton from, and I fancy myself as being smarter than the average bear on some of this stuff, just because I've been a passionate fan for such a long time, even before you were born, young man. Um <laughs> about this rule change thing in the mid nineties, which as we all know, was a very odd and, and uh, you know, a dark period of time uh, in the pro game. I mean, 94 in the, in the world cup certainly resuscitated things, the promise of, a, of an MLS in 95 and then really 96, but these rule changes were, uh, tell us about that story and why, because, you're kind of playing with fire. You just got the kindling back going to get the soccer game on the pro level back with all these major events. And now we're, t- now we're twiddling with the knobs of rules <laughs> in minor leagues. So, I mean, t- t- I mean, I think going. I'm going to make a, a guest recommendation for you. And if you've already had him on great uh, Francisco Marcos, who is, you know, was an employee for the Tampa Bay Rowdies in the seventies. And then essentially just guided the USISL for like 15 years um, and is also just like a fantastic interview. He was in charge of a lot of this. Basically, MLS, um, you know, they had approached FIFA about doing some things differently, wider goals, uh, kick-ins. Um, I want to say another one was one was a 60-minute clock um that paused, you know, when the ball went out of bounds, basically. So it was designed to just eliminate all the dead, you know, the 30 minutes where it's you know, time is wasted or the clock has stopped or whatever. Um, trying to think of other ones, a uh, short, short corner kick. So for example, if you play the ball over the end line in the penalty area, your corner kick would be from the, where the, you know, where the penalty box meets the end line, if that makes any sense, you know, much closer to the near post. So, um, you know, FIFA wasn't thrilled about this, but MLS went ahead and basically partnered with the USISL and said, let's try all this stuff out. And, and like, shockingly they did. Um, and God, man, the, the craziest one is a stampede kick, which I still can't believe actually ever happened. And it's one right of my, up there with the original XFL uh, game. Yeah, right. That, exactly. And I explain think, what um, that was the stampede kick. Yeah. Basically what would happen is, um, you know, think about, think about it in hockey where, if, if you're taken down a breakaway, you get the sort of skate in penalty kick sort of or penalty kick skate in you know, a penalty shot. And, um, you know, it's similar to that 35 yard shootout vibe. This is <laughs> different in that 
you the ball gets placed on the 35 you know so if you get taken down you know if, if it's a denial of a clear goal scoring opportunity you're breaking on goal um you know it's a red card like it is today but also you get what's called stampede kick which is the ball will be placed on the 35 yard line and every single other member of the team would line up at half field and you know the whistle blows you step forward you touch the ball you start chart you know you start started on goal for your attempt and you have whatever it is 20 20 people chasing you you know um 10 of them on the other team like um and i talked to tony mule about this because he you know is playing for long island rough riders and he he faced one of these and it was just like it was the most terrifying thing that's in my entire career he was like you could feel the field shaking you know and he said you know came out got just absolutely creamed by two or three players and um and then uh uh, told his coach after the match like i this is absolute insanity like i'm never doing that again you know so some some of the rule changes were more effective than others you know one thing i thought was really interesting is widening the goals by i want to say it was five feet had like almost no effect um uh kickins were i think the one that was most successful as far as generating scoring chances and um kickins actually were also fifa used them in a youth world cup um, so they they got pretty close, I think, to uh, to you know enacting that. But if you read the piece, you know, I talked to, and again, I I'm ashamed that I'm blanking on his name, but um, I spoke to the USIS, USISL statistician who compiled all the data, you know, sort of like whether these things worked or not. And I was thrilled. The guy had basically an entire box in his garage of of the old stats and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was really interesting. Do you know if there's any video uh, of any of those stampede? This kicks is around? this is like my 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 wildest fantasy is to find a stampede kick video, I, which is like this is the saddest thing I've said on a podcast in, <laughs> in history. But like, you know, I I've combed through like every USISL game and clip I can find on YouTube from the time period where they were doing these. I can't find one. I, I know it happened because of Tony Miola, because of Michael Lewis, also who. Um, who remembers seeing them in person, but who knows, maybe someday we'll, you know, somebody will mail me a unmarked uh, padded mailer with an unmarked VHS cassette in it and be a stampede kick. I am one of those people who believe it's just there. It's just sitting in some corner somewhere. For sure. For sure. Um, so Fernando, we love uh, Marcos would be great. Cause um, uh, I think he's probably one of the biggest unsung heroes uh of the the modern pro it's, game because like an american soccer zelig you know what i mean it's just, yeah. it's just sort of been everywhere like yeah you know. I, but I, I mean fernando marcos the us see the usisl was actually a collection of leagues it was actually uh yeah with various regional blah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, gradations of pro including indoor stuff and yeah. this was largely what kind of sustained i guess or kept alive or kept the pulse for the pro game from you know, the, 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 the end in 1985 of the NASL to, you know, whatever murmurs sort of came prior to the world cup and then even sustaining through the beginning of MLS, which itself was delayed until 96. Right. So I talk about an un, uh, you know, uh, unearthed and, and not fully told story. I think that certainly is one it's, it's a bridge that story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, for someone like me, I mean, I was going to Nashville Metro's games at a, you know, at Ezel Park in Nashville, Tennessee, in the early '90s. So it was, it was the only soccer I had to speak of. 
you know, and there's a lot of people um, for whom that was true. So it's, you know, sort of owe a debt of gratitude to, to people who did the the hard work in the, in the absolute leanest years, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, um, where the yeah, game was I, I just legitimately going, I, on life support. You know? Yeah. I remember going to a Louisville Thunder, wait a minute, Louisville Thoroughbreds game at some high school in, in Louisville. <laughs> I was at the time. And, and you know, the, the field had rocks on it and stuff. And then look, you're talking, this was a kid, uh, me back in the day, you know, I'd grown up and, was now working for a living and, and, you know, having seen Cosmos games at giant stadium, like, my God, this is what it's come to. Yeah. I, the other thing I love with the USISL and I'll give you like a sneak preview of one of my coming uh, upcoming pieces, which is I'm going to do a piece on the proliferation and decline of the flaming soccer ball in in America. I mean, I'm going to do a statistical analysis of this because it started in the seventies and eighties and then in the 90s, in the USISL, it was like every single team had a flaming soccer ball at their crest, right? MLS, shockingly, never had one. And they had the um, San Jose Earthquakes. Kind of looks like, you know, there's sort of like sun rays coming off the ball. Doesn't qualify. You know, there have been other sort of explosive elements and crests. But the uh, the soccer ball just on fire, flying through the air. Um, they, they I guess they retired that in 1996. Uh, you got to include uh, some of the indoor teams for that. that oh, ball. for sure. The MISL also is, you know, but again, there have to be ground rules, right? I mean, the Baltimore blast, the ball is emerging from an explosion, but I'm talking, it has to be an active involved fire on the surface. Okay. The, All right. Smart guy. What about the Kansas city comets then? Yes. Yeah, uh, well, that's different though. I mean, I guess if it is a comment, it probably is. I don't know. Is the comment re-entering the Earth or entering the Earth's atmosphere? Is it involved, you know, enveloped with flames or something? I mean, it's also a neon sign, so maybe it doesn't qualify for that. Yeah, one. yeah, knows? great logo by That's the way. Great. Man, they had, they had. I don't know if you watched the MASL. They had uh, absolutely killer uniforms last year, like throwback kits that they wore. Um, all right, before we let you go, I gotta touch on a couple of other uh, uh, areas here. Um, You've already started to uh, bring back, if you will, MLS history, even though most people might think there's no history there. Um, time has evolved, right? Um, you, you've I, I, either through tweets or through articles or, or hints within other pieces, uh, you know, callbacks, for example, to the I guess it's the two cool club in the beginning. Right. You know, with the whiz and the burn. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I clash and those those garish uniforms and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that the. the the biggest example of that is, you know, I did, a, and this is, it has to be the dumbest thing I've ever done. Um, now this I podcast did, may be that, but I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's a toss up. Um, I, I basically looked at the Columbus Crew's old, old logo, you know, because the crew was, they were going through these multiple rebrands and it was just like a, a disgrace, honestly, you know, the way the whole, the way it was all, especially the most recent ones, just their logos fucking trash excuse me um but you know so i thought i looked at the first one i said how can i like how can i write about this logo and the formation of the team and make it interesting and make people want to read and i thought i'm i'm gonna find one of those dudes in the crest you know because it was very obvious that it's an, an illustration based off a photograph to me um i never thought i would you know but but you never know and it led me on this like six month long journey and i eventually found one of the guys in the crest right but i you know, I, my idea, I guess, you know, the way I executed it was to, to use that search for the guy as a, a vehicle to talk more bro uh, broadly about MLS's constant rebranding and, 
and their efforts to just get away from, you know, some of their original identities. Um, you know, obviously the New England Revolution, re, you know, they did a rebrand, what, two years ago now, and they were the last MLS 1.0 team to have had their original, you know, logo. And so, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it, it will come as no surprise to you that, yeah, it's it's obnoxious to me that, that MLS has sort of, uh, done so much to distance itself from its history. I still have my uh, my replica clash jersey from uh, 1996. I was at that first game in San Jose, and it was just like I love. Oh, I mean, wow. that was cool. I mean, some of the L- uh, early LA Galaxy uh, striped jerseys, the uh, yeah, early the Metro Stars. And- I think the Metro Stars have been completely whitewashed, right? I mean, uh, I don't know how much uh, Red Bull in New York uh, uh, sort of brings that out of the uh, the closet, so to speak. But you know, this that that was. That that story right there, right, is was t- talk about having to rekindle pro soccer in the market where it was just it the the comet burned out, you know, with the cosmos, right? I mean, you could not have gotten higher than that back yep, in the day, yep. and then you had to kind of walk in and hiring the former coach for God's sake, Eddie Fermani, as your first guy out of the gate. I mean, <laughs> my God, completely forget that he, that he even coached MLS, um, and so did Ron Newman. I mean, there's there are these three or four coaches that sort of managed to coach and. And uh, and the NASL and in Major League Soccer, which is absolutely mind-boggling to think about. Um, but but yeah, um, the Metro Stars—that's an interesting one. It's not one I've I've really ever touched. I, I might have to change that. I mean, there's definitely a lot of stories there. Um, you know, so maybe I'll maybe I'll do a Metro's thing. All right, one you have touched though, uh, which I think is uh, again indicative of of the league has lasted a lot longer than most people will admit or think. It's Chivas USA. Um, a couple of mo- <laughs> moments on that one, because that's a very interesting dynamic. And 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 uh, I think also indicative of the league at the time, uh, looking for stuff to, to grab onto, so to speak, to keep the momentum going, whatever it took. Yeah, I mean, I think it was their laziest, uh, their laziest attempt at garnering interest. It was just one of those things where they were like, you know, smack this name and colors on these jerseys and fill the roster with nobodies and, you know, just the, the presence of this crest will attract Mexican fans and obviously did not work. Um, yeah, that, that one is, uh, I teamed up with stamp stage school for that one. That was, uh, this day, I think it's the longest thing I've ever written. It was 13,500 words because it, it just, there was so much to unpack there, you know, cause they were, and they had a couple of good years, you know, under Bob Bradley, in the mid aughts or whatever, you know, but then um, it just, they just became this ghost ship that like was sort of horrifying. And then, you know, Chelly's uh, was like one of the craziest coaches in MLS history. I told Sam, I was like, I could write 5,000 words just on the sort of Chelly's area, the uh, uh, era and dysfunction and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, MLS's biggest failed experiment. It's probably their biggest misstep. You know, I don't think, you know, yeah, they, the, the Florida teams folded and, you know, San Jose, all this stuff. But, um, you know, I think the atmosphere and environment was different back then. And they, those teams kind of went away with a whimper. Chivas USA was an absolute failure, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's just starting with marketing and branding, right? It's like, okay, well, what is this team? Is it, is it the, the, the tier two version of Chivas? Is it the feeder system for, the Liga MX version is it? Is it you know? And then there were years like perhaps under Bradley where it was not that it was trying to actually walk away or run away, screaming from that 
that uh, that umbrella sort of understanding and, and, and be its own sort of thing, but yet still with the Chivas USA name on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It just um, when I think of Chivas USA, mostly what I think of is just the empty stadiums at the end, the sort of crowds of two or three thousand people. And it's funny what you said about how they could be a feeder team. I mean, if, if they had embraced what I think um, some people there wanted to do, which was essentially make them, um, uh, you know, a, a club that would just identify young Mexican-American talent in the United States, you know, dual nationals, guys that could end up playing for Chivas de Guadalajara, it probably would have worked, you know? Um, but I, I think it just became a sort of unholy bastardization of, I mean, it just wasn't any concept, you know, at, at the end. And also I think it's interesting, like, you know, if you're going to bring a brand to the U.S., so, I mean, it's like, obviously the, the biggest brands in Mexico soccer wise are club America and, uh, and Chivas. Right. But the thing is, if you identify a team as being affiliated with one of those two clubs, you've, you've automatically alienated millions of fans. I mean, there's no way that a, a Mexican, that a club America fan in the United States would even go to a Chivas US gate. You know what I mean? It's just like the whole concept was bizarre. Um, so, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's and and oddly maybe a bit of a, a, a ahead of its time given where you know the uh the the embrace of MLS and Liga MX now uh to the point of uh, I think some in some circles people think there's going to be an outright merger in a decade or two. Um so uh, you know, but uh, yeah, you could see how and it's weird too because you know, with all the Mexican teams, even the national teams playing in the US so much for for you know for for money's sake, right? So yeah, I mean, uh, uh, is clearly it was a ham-handed, I guess, attempt to um, draft off of, I guess, uh, you know, some of the goodness of the Mexican league. But uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's why you wrote about it. That's why there's so many words about it, and that's why people need to go and read that story because it's uh, it's it's worth not forgetting. Yeah, for sure. Um... I'm going to keep doing it unless somebody keeps paying me to do it. <laughs> so, you know. We'll, All right. Well, let me end on this one because uh, you mentioned the word, um, what was it? Bastardization was another word. Um, we got to talk about soccer slam. Um, yes. <laughs> so for our audience, so uh, th this sort of it falls into, this is, this is, this is ESPN Ocho before ESPN Ocho existed, right? And, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was this thing? I didn't even know about it until I discovered it in your writing. Look, if the Waterfed and Peace is the best thing I've ever written, this is the soccer slam was my favorite thing I've ever written. Um, this was, uh, and I, I gotta, I gotta give a little credit to Alex Abnos, my editor, who, um, you know, uh, just on Slack one day was like, "Do you remember this like weird, like uh, you know, blend of like wrestling and indoors? Like, am I hallucinating this?" And like. He completely rekindled like an area of my brain that had been dormant for 20 years because both of us had seen uh soccer slam on Fox sports world, like at one in the morning in college and just forgotten about it. Um, but for those of you who don't know, which is going to be everybody, uh, <laughs> soccer slam was um, a, an attempt by T Terry rich who's an Iowa city, an Iowa area businessman Um you know, he he was like he made a ton of money in cable television. I don't know if you guys remember. Obviously, like if you had cable in the eighties, there would always be these free previews. You know, get so you get like HBO for free for a week, and like during the preview, there'd be presenters, you know, sort of pitching you on buying HBO. That 
like he produced those segments and just made like a ton of money doing it. And so in the late nineties, um, the hot shit was WWF or the WWE at that point. And, um, and Terry Rich was like, look, I, I'm, I think soccer is like a, uh, you know, it's going to explode in popularity and I want to incorporate elements of wrestling into it. So what he did was create a league four teams and this league, all of them playing in Iowa city at a, at a hockey arena on an indoor field. Um, and, uh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, the game is, you know, they play with outdoor goals on an indoor field there at times there's more than one ball in play at the same time. It's full contact. These players like checking each other. You can use, um, the use of a closed fist is allowed, which is like you can punch the ball into the goal. Um, and maybe most importantly, like Rich sort of incorporated the the fictional elements of WWE. And, you know, there were, there were like storylines, uh, love triangles. Uh, you know, I, one comes to mind where it was like the Miami team and the New York team. And like the New York team were just a bunch of like racists, essentially. They were, they, there's a line that sticks out where they said they were going to, send the Miami team back to Cuba on a raft, right? This had to have been probably around Elian Gonzalez is my guest. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like absolutely positively absurd in the best possible way. So this, you know, they filmed, I think two or three episodes of this. Um, and unsurprisingly, nobody fucking watched it and it got canceled. And then it just got forgotten about until Alex, sparked that memory in my brain i mean i remember calling terry rich and him just being i get this a lot when i do these pieces where people are just like what you know i, I like you're calling me about soccer slam you know but uh it was a fun one then yeah you know, i found we i think put four episodes of it back on vimeo and uh actually i think terry rich commissioned um uh, uh the making of a documentary about soccer slam which i actually filmed for so it's and i've seen the whole thing i think it's being pitched to amazon netflix etc um but it's fantastic it's fantastic uh somehow they went even further down the rabbit hole than me you know um but but yeah i guess terry rich continues to waste money on those sorts of pursuits well look i i love the fact that you you have you've unearthed these and brought them to uh new audiences and and even those who fancy themselves as being you know astute observers of the games and and its history here in the united states because um uh, they're they're uh, they're they're enlightening. They're fun to read, and and they're just just I, you get gobsmacked by by recognizing that these things actually happened. And that that to me, I you know, in the, this little corner of the world, I think that's important stuff. And God bless people like you who look for those things because Lord knows there's just I mean, if if journalism is about telling great stories and and, and maybe a little educational and informational at the, at the, at, at the same time. I mean, look, this is just, it just feels to me like this is a very um, fertile uh, uh, field uh, st still yet to be tilled. Yeah, for sure. Um, there, there's a lot to be done. I'd, I'd really like to dig into the MISL at some point too, um, which is a whole other ball of wax, obviously. But I'll, you know, like I said, as long as, as long as there's a major corporation crazy enough to pay me to write about absurd soccer history i'm just going to keep doing it um i didn't sell my tools i still work on cars so i fully anticipate having to come back to that full time someday but uh but for now i'm just going to keep having fun
Well, if you uh, fancy yourself as a, uh, a North American Soccer League completist uh, or an MLS historian, quote unquote, even though it's only 27 years old, um, uh, or don't even remember some of the alphabet soup uh, of leagues before, during, and after those, like the USISL, etc., you are welcome. Uh, I am uh, uh, just ecstatic to have had Pablo here after a couple of years of trying to chase him down. And uh, there is loads more to be found and discovered uh, by us, but frankly, uh, probably er earlier, I guess, because this is his beat that he's carved out for himself. Uh, Pablo Maurer is uh, not only worth a follow, but worth a subscription. Uh, let's tell you how the best do those things. Number one is to follow him on Twitter. That's uh, at MLSist. I will I will spell it out for you. That's M-L-S-I-S-T. At MLSist. Um, it's a it's a it's a follow and a half, uh, and uh, lots of hot takes, uh, lots of uh, observations of today's Major League Soccer, uh, callbacks to the old NASL and and the like, uh, and interesting through lines. Oftentimes, sometimes unwittingly. Um, you could do worse than to add him to your follow uh, and feeds. Uh, but you could do better, frankly, by coughing up a couple of shekels for a monthly or yearly subscription to The Athletic. Uh, you know The New York Times has purchased them, uh, and for good reason, because it is uh, probably the most comprehensive and well-staffed sports section in this country today. Yes, it started online, and it is still online, and it's going very strong. Thank you. Just go to theathletic.com and get yourself a subscription. I'm sorry we don't have any promo uh, for you there, but to keep an eye out, they do uh, some promotions during the course of the year and stuff. And if nothing else, to subscribe solely for the soccer uh, rumblings and observations of our guest this week, Pablo Maurer. Um, you can also just buy a, a you know, de facto uh, a byproduct you're getting a whole bunch of other sports stuff too but this is you know this is worth a subscription alone if you ask me um, so we appreciate uh, that and you following him I'm sure he will too uh, and we appreciate you listening to uh, our various shows you can find all of our uh, past uh, and future episodes on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com uh, just uh, just tool around. You can there's a search bar there that'll literally take you to whatever league or team or sport. Uh, if you think maybe uh, we might have covered it, you'll be able to find it there, uh, and you can stream it there. You can share it with your friends, whatever. But of course, why would you do all that work when you can just simply subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app? Because that's the best way to get literally the second our shows get put onto the RSS feeds. You'll get it and you can download it then and do whatever you want then. Right. So why? But in case you miss it, somehow you forgot or you want to turn on people to the show and get, have them sample it. The website, of course, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Great place to start. Our social media stuff uh, can be found as uh, as we uh, tell you now. It's Facebook. You can find us at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on that Instagrammy thing at uh, Good Seats Still Available. And of course, on the Twitter, uh, at Good Seats Still. It's probably our most active place. Uh, and fun photography and uh, little uh, snippets and observations uh, will be found for you there to accompany your weekly journey into our um, audio extravaganza that we do for you each and every week. 
Uh, you can send us email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And yes, you will find a, a link on our website to our little weekly email newsletter that last couple of weeks, couple of hiccups, but uh, we will get back up and running uh, in short order. Our thanks, of course, to the great Dr. Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, once again, doing his job this week. Thank you, kind sir. And uh, we appreciate you all listening uh, and uh, all those cards and letters coming and keep them coming. Until next week, God willing, we will see you. Take care.